This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. The head of MI5, the UK's domestic spy agency, says he's profoundly sorry that security services failed to act on key intelligence that might have prevented the bombing of the Manchester Arena in 2017, which killed 22 people. And inquiries found that MI5 agents missed a significant opportunity that could have stopped Salman Abadi carrying out a suicide attack at the venue after an Ariana Grande concert. With more, here's Europe correspondent Steve Kinane. In May 2017, one of the worst terrorist attacks in British history was carried out. Thousands of Ariana Grande fans were leaving the Manchester arena when 22-year-old Islamist Salman Abadi detonated a suicide bomb. 22 people died, many of them were teenagers. The youngest was eight. In his final report, Sir John Saunders has found that security services were handed two crucial pieces of intelligence in the lead-up to the attack that could have led them to stop and search Abadi when he returned from Libya four days earlier. Is that I have found a significant missed opportunity to take action that might have prevented the attack. It is not possible to reach any conclusion on the balance of probabilities or to any other evidential standard as to whether the attack would have been prevented. However, there was a realistic possibility that actionable intelligence could have been obtained which might have led to action preventing the attack. Families of those who lost their loved ones in the attack have described the findings as devastating. Caroline Curry lost her 19-year-old boy Liam that night. He died with his girlfriend, Chloe Rutherford. Forgiveness will never be an option for such evil intentions and those that played any part in the murder of our children will never, ever get forgiveness. From top to bottom, MI5 to the associates of the attacker, we will always believe that you all played a part in the murder of our children. At the time of the attack, MI5 was monitoring around 3,000 terrorism suspects in the UK. It was a time when Europe was under heightened risk from would-be terrorists inspired by so-called Islamic State. But MI5 failed to put its resources into monitoring Abadi. The Director-General of MI5, Ken McCallum, issued a statement in which he said he was profoundly sorry that his agency was not able to prevent the attack. I deeply regret that such intelligence was not obtained. Gathering covert intelligence is difficult, but had we managed to seize the slim chance we had, those impacted might not have experienced such appalling loss and trauma. I am profoundly sorry that MI5 did not prevent the attack. The report also found Abadi's family held significant responsibility for his radicalisation and that MI5's focus on Syria at the time, at the expense of Libya, also played a part in failing to prevent the attack. This is Steve Kinane reporting from London for AM. A meeting of G20 foreign ministers has failed to agree on a joint statement despite the host country India trying to bridge the gap between Russia, China and the West over the war in Ukraine. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken and his Russian counterpart Sergei Lavrov had an unscheduled face-to-face encounter on the sidelines of the event. It was their first meeting since the invasion. South Asia correspondent Avani Dias filed this report from New Delhi. I welcome you to India for the G20 foreign ministers meeting. 
Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi rarely speaks in English, but he wanted a strong message to get through to the foreign minister's meeting at the G20 summit in New Delhi. Focus not on what divides us, but on what unites us. But after hours of meetings, the ministers failed to agree on a joint statement. India's External Affairs Minister, Dr S. Jai Shankar, said while the ministers reached consensus on most issues, there was one which kept them divided. The issues, uh, I would say, uh, very frankly, concerned uh, the Ukraine conflict, uh, on which there were divergences. India has built strong relationships with countries like Australia and the US, which have condemned the Russian invasion. But with ongoing military ties and India increasing oil imports from Russia, Delhi has held back from criticising the Kremlin directly. And while India couldn't use this unique position in the middle to bring together the two sides, the US and Russia's top diplomats did speak in an unexpected face-to-face meeting. Every G20 member and virtually every country, period, continues to bear the costs of Russia's war of aggression, a war that President Putin could end tomorrow if he chose to do so. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and his Russian counterpart Sergei Lavrov spoke on the move for less than 10 minutes, according to the Russian Foreign Ministry. Mr Blinken said the U.S. will continue to support Ukraine for as long as it takes. Mr Lavrov accused the West of blackmailing. I told the foreign minister what so many G20 foreign ministers said today. End this war of aggression. Engage in meaningful diplomacy that can produce a just and durable peace. Uh, Thank you, Mr. Russia's closest friend at the G20 meeting was China. Australian Foreign Minister Penny Wong called on her Chinese counterpart, Ching Gong, to do more in ending the war. The world does look to China uh, for its responsible leadership when it comes to Ukraine, particularly given its close relationship uh, with Russia. At the end of the day, the host country India left the rest of the G20 countries with a stern warning. The more they stay divided, the more developing nations will suffer. For much of the global south, this is a make or break issue. This is Avani Dias in New Delhi reporting for AM. Researchers say Western Australia is still struggling to lure back international visitors and return to pre-COVID tourism numbers, despite the state spending millions on global marketing. As Isabel Masali reports, it's now a year since WA opened up its borders to the rest of Australia and the world. Perth travel agent Ki Sung is spending the day with a group of Chinese tourists, showing them the sites of the Margaret River region. Out here, quite fun, yeah. They just uh, take the train on the jetty. <laughs> And there have been uh, the Pink Lake, the Pinnacles, uh, the Kabari. His business for mostly Chinese tourists was once booming in popularity. And then COVID struck. Now, a year on from WA's border reopening and China's recent border changes, he's starting to get customers back. In the last two years, we're suffering uh, because it's no any internationals. We have to just focus interstates. But... Western Australia's borders sometimes it's a shutdown it's very quickly. But luckily, uh, we survived. A report out today by Curtin University examines the state of WA's tourism industry, showing while international tourist numbers and their tourism dollars are returning, there's still a way to go. 
tourism was worth about $12 billion to the WA economy in 2018-19, and nearly halved two years later. Senior Research Fellow and Report Co-Author Dr Daniel Kiley. We're definitely seeing a lag between the opening of international borders and the number of international visitors coming here to Western Australia. International visitors to WA in December 2019 hit around 110,000 visitors. In December 2022, international visitors to WA sat at 70,000. He argues more needs to be done to bring tourism back to pre-COVID numbers and beyond. But there's a range of challenges. That includes re-engaging with the Chinese tourism market, along with addressing housing and labour supply. The shortage of housing supply and therefore the ability to house and attract workers, especially to the regions of WA, is a critical factor that needs to be addressed. The report argues another key solution is boosting WA's international appeal as a holiday destination. And that work is underway, with the state government last year launching a $15 million international campaign. It features picture-perfect landscape shots set to a re-recording of a hit song by Empire of the Sun. Recent ads have displayed in Piccadilly Circus and Times Square. Dr Daniel Kiley says there's evidence these campaigns are working, but more are needed. Our modelling suggests that if we have a 50% increase in search volumes internationally, then this would translate into an extra 130,000 visitors and a half a billion dollars extra in revenue through tourism spending here within the state. Dr Daniel Kiley from Curtin University, Isabel Masali reporting. A cancer diagnosis is a life-changing event. But what if you were told you had cancer while 12 weeks pregnant, just months after your husband had been given a diagnosis of terminal brain cancer? The couple you're about to meet is grateful for how these events unfolded. And as Victoria Pengelly reports, a family's resilience, despite the odds and distances involved, is pretty inspirational. What about some more plum? Another grape? On a busy weekday morning, Samantha and Tony Cook are taking their two young children to the local park. It's a familiar ritual, but it's a far cry from the shearing sheds the couple once worked in. Three years ago, their lives took an unexpected turn. One morning on our holiday, Tony got sick and it took a week and two different hospitals to um, find out that he had a brain tumour. It was terminal brain cancer and Tony had three months to live. I thought I'd been scared at times in my life before, but never anything like that moment. Tony was taken into surgery and signed up to a strict regimen of chemotherapy and radiation treatment. Doctors told the couple if they ever wanted to have children, now was their chance. But it wasn't long before the pair were thrown another curveball during Samantha's 12-week pregnancy scan. They got a doctor down there and they told me that I had a tumour on my left ovary. It was early stage ovarian cancer. Two weeks later, the tumour was removed and six months later, Samantha's son Wyatt was born. Tony, he's my hero in the story, you know. If it wasn't for him, (laughs) my outcome would have been a lot worse. If we had delayed it for another two more years to have children, that cancer could have spread would through have her body been a and could outcome, have been a death yeah. sentence for us. Ovarian cancer is considered the deadliest women's cancer because it's hard to detect early. 
gynaecological oncologist Dr Nim Cabral from the Mater Hospital in Brisbane was Samantha's surgeon. I think ovarian cancer has been very much overlooked in relation especially to breast cancer. One of the reasons that breast cancer is less deadly now is because a lot of research has gone into it. Hopefully with time we will see that evolution in the ovarian cancer space as well. Oh, oh it's okay. Fast forward three years and the Cook family lives in the small town of Blackhall in western Queensland. White is the big brother to his four-month-old sister Aspen. Samantha considers herself cancer-free. Tony has outlived every prediction made by his doctors and makes the 10-hour trip to Brisbane to get treatment every few months. Gemma Locke from the Cancer Council Queensland says it shows how hard access to cancer care can be for those living in rural communities. We do often hear issues um, with people needing to travel. We also understand that some of the additional impacts can be on employment, financial stresses, as well as the health and well-being of caregivers, so broader family. The couple say remaining positive is what keeps them going. No one knows how much time they've got, so, you know, no one's guaranteed any amount of time. We just live every day, enjoy every day. Queensland mum Samantha Cook, ending that report by Victoria Pengelly. Pacific nations are celebrating Australia's support for what could be a landmark decision linking climate change and human rights. Political reporter Nicole Hegarty has the story. It was an historic address, the first by a Pacific Islands president to the United Nations General Assembly. The then Kiribati president, Anote Tong, labelled climate change the greatest moral challenge of our time. The most vulnerable countries continue to spend a disproportionate level of our limited resources fighting the onslaught of the rising seas and storm surges on our homes, livelihoods and public infrastructure. Eleven years later, the region is confident the majority of that same Assembly will support a vote to have the International Court of Justice rule on the legal obligations large emitting states have to deal with climate change and damage they cause. Vishal Prasad is a Fijian climate change campaigner. Three years ago in a university classroom, the then law student Vishal joined with 26 other students calling on Pacific leaders to campaign for the International Court of Justice to rule on states' obligations to protect the rights of residents against climate change. What are the obligations of states? What should they do in order to protect the rights? And what what are the consequences if this is not being done? And so really bolster ambition, bolster the accountability, fairness and all that's needed in order for us to get back on track in meeting our climate goals. Vishal says this campaign, which has now made its way to the United Nations General Assembly, is an attempt to catalyse greater climate ambition. The now former president of Kiribati, Note Tong, questions what impact the advisory opinion would have. He worries it will be more symbolic than practical. For us, it's already too late because um, even if emissions were cut to zero tomorrow, uh, the momentum of the uh, what's already in the, in the atmosphere will continue to drive global temperatures, will continue to drive um, uh, sea levels to rise. But Greenpeace Australia Pacific General Counsel Katrina Bullock thinks the ruling could do much more. And what that will result in is a much greater ability to strengthen climate ambition from, from governments, but also to hold big polluters, whether they be governments or companies, to account. 
Vanuatu's foreign minister says the cyclone disaster in the country this week is a reminder of its vulnerability to extreme weather events, which can be worsened by climate change. Katrina Bullock agrees. This is about asking the highest court in the world to reconsider all those treaties and agreements and to come up with a set of obligations that would be the baseline obligations every country must comply with. China and the US, the world's two largest emitters, have not signed. Neither have Indonesia and India. But Fijian climate change campaigner Vishal Prasad is keeping optimistic. We need to be collectively ready and and armed to be able to address this. So we really hope countries that haven't co-sponsored do come on board when the time comes at the General Assembly. The United Nations is expected to vote on the motion in coming months, with any international court of justice process likely to take years. Nicole Hegarty. In the United States, jurors in a high-profile double murder case in South Carolina will soon have to decide whether a once-powerful lawyer murdered his wife and son on their sprawling country estate in June 2021 as his own life began to unravel. The trial against Alex Murdoch has made international headlines and inspired a Netflix documentary with its sensational revelations of addiction, embezzlement and an apparent fake assassination plot. North America correspondent Barbara Miller is at court. Today, as always, there's a long line of members of the public outside court hoping for a seat in the courtroom. The vast majority are women. There are a few men. And some bring deck chairs because of the long wait they have here. It's testament to the fascination that this case has for so many people. We are high school students and we are super excited to be here because we've been following along the trial for several weeks now and we've been super invested. There's always new stuff coming out. So you're missing school? Yes, ma'am. I think that they've done a lot of really bad things. Or that he but, has. Uh, yeah, he has, but do I think that he murdered his son and wife? I'm not sure. A local lady did a poll, and she, uh, on faith, like a Facebook poll, and about 100 people voted, and it was about 25% not guilty and about 75% guilty. Be seated. Inside, on day 28 of this case, the defence presented its closing arguments. Alec Murdoch's lawyer, Jim Griffin, told the court there was no evidence his client murdered his wife and son. Why did they never take DNA samples off of Maggie's clothes, her dress? Why did they never take DNA samples off Paul's clothes? They never did. Alec Murdoch took the stand in this case to directly address a crucial piece of evidence, a video taken on his son Paul's phone just minutes before the 22-year-old was shot dead. Hey, Bubba. Alec Murdoch's voice is also on that tape, giving lie to the story he long told to police. I, uh, I was up at the house, I laid down, took a nap on the couch. Here's prosecutor Creighton Waters in his summing up. Why in the world would an innocent, reasonable father and husband lie about that? Alec Murdoch told the court his opioid addiction made him paranoid and caused him to lie. The now disbarred lawyer faces charges over embezzling clients to the tune of millions of dollars and over a murky apparent staged hit on his life. Questions are also being asked about several other deaths linked to this family. This is the fall of a dynasty. No wonder Netflix is on board. Do you believe that Alec Murdoch would kill Paul and Maggie? Even in a market saturated with true crime tales, this one has broken through. 
because you really couldn't make it up. This is Barbara Miller in Walterboro, South Carolina, reporting for AM. And that's AM. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Super was set up to be your ticket to a comfortable retirement. But over the years, the richest Australians have done a lot better out of it than everyone else. Today, ABC 730's chief political correspondent, Laura Tingle, on the government's surprise move to target the wealthy with a tax hike. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.